So we'll, we'll be in First Peter chapter 5. Um, we'll be going through most of the chapter except for the very ending. We have been going through First Peter, and Jake has been leading us through a series where we look at Peter as a disciple and his role that he played in writing to the church that was undergoing suffering and persecution in the first century. Um, just to give a brief context on where we are, because um, a brief context on where we are and, and where what Peter is talking about and, and the background he's coming from. Uh, the church was undergoing persecution in the first century. Um, this was about the time either before or after Nero burnt Rome and blamed that on Christians. And this was a time when there was growing persecution throughout the empire of Christians um, for various reasons, mostly political. And so we will be looking today at a passage that speaks to the persecuted church. It will apply to us. It may be different in how it applies to us, but it will apply to us. And so we're going we're gonna to look at this final charge that Peter gives to the church in his letter. Um, and so let's read 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So I exhort, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering, sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will establish, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So I just want to move back briefly to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 and verse 19, to give the context that Peter's coming out of when he continues here in chapter 5. In verse 12 it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So Peter says that this is something that is to be expected. This is going to happen. In verse 19 it says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And so we see that going into this final charge that Peter gives to the church in this, in this letter. He comes from this context where he's talking about persecution that's happening, suffering that's happening, and, and the need for the Christians to entrust themselves to a faithful God. So there's a very eschatological viewpoint that Peter's coming from, a viewpoint of the end times, what's going to finally be fulfilled at the end in the believer's glory, glorification with Christ. And so we're going to see that throughout the passage. But we're going to see three charges that Peter gives the church here. We're going to give, see a charge to the leadership of the church, a charge for humility of the church, 
and a charge for anticipation of the church. There is a charge to the leadership, a charge for the church to have humility, and a charge for the church to anticipate. Um, we're going to see what exactly what the anticipation looks like. It's twofold, but we'll see that in a, in a little while. So the first thing we see is that Peter charges the leadership of the church. He says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He starts with that. He, he, he starts off by putting himself at the same level as the elders, because Peter realizes that he and the apostles, although they might be apostles, they're the ones who are bringing the prophecy. They're the ones who are basically establishing the church in doctrine and teaching. He's basically telling, telling them, we're all spiritual leaders. We're all on that level that God has placed us and leaders over the church. So, we see that first and foremost, this is God's flock that Peter's talking about. It's not his flock. It's Christ's church. He says, a witness of the, of the sufferings of Christ, as well as partakers in the glory that is to be revealed. He, he forms this, this viewpoint of elders based on the foundation of who Christ is. Um, first and foremost, the church is Christ, and the elders are shepherding under Christ. They're shepherding the church for Christ. Um, it's not their church. Now, this passage that Peter talks about leadership, um, he gets a structure that comes from Ezekiel, from the Old Testament. This is a structure that speaks to the failures of the leaders in Israel's past. I'm going to read Ezekiel chapter 34, the beginning of it. Uh, in Ezekiel chapter 34, this is the Lord speaking. It says, the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak have not the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered over all the mountains and on, and on every hill. My sheep were scattered over all the earth, all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. So we see, first of all, that Peter comes from this framework of what the shepherds of Israel were not, what their failures had been in the past. And he talks about what a shepherd should be. So we're going to see this contrast going through verse 3, 1 through 3, where Peter's saying, like, don't be this, but be this. Don't be this, but be this. Because he's, he's speaking to what the failures of the shepherds of Israel had been in the past, the leaders and feeding themselves and not the people. So we see that the first thing that a shepherd should be um, is a shepherd of the flock. They're supposed to care for them. In verse 2 it says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So what does this shepherding the flock look like? What does it look like for a shepherd to shepherd the flock? Well, first of all, the shepherd is supposed to guard and lead. So the shepherd's main role is to guard and lead the church spiritually. So what does that look like? Well, they're supposed to teach the word. They're, to, they're supposed to uphold sound doctrine, 
so that the church doesn't fall into heresy and sin. Um, they're supposed to protect the church from false teachers coming in. So when someone comes in with a different teaching, they're supposed to evaluate on Scripture and see what that looks like. They're, they're supposed to exhort the believers. Being a shepherd, in when God talks about the shepherds of Israel not feeding the sheep, they're supposed to feed them so that they can live their lives in a godly way. And the way that happens is day to day in the exhortation. Uh, week to week, when someone needs help, when they need advice, they can go to an elder, they can go to a shepherd, a pastor, and they can get that advice that's based on biblical teaching, something that's going to help them in their day-to-day -day life. And so they're supposed to exhort on sound doctrine. They're also supposed to pray for the believers. Um, Christ prayed for the apostles over and over in the garden that they would not fall into temptation. We're going to see in a little while how that plays out um, with Peter and his experience with Christ in the garden and him, his falling asleep. But Christ prayed for the church. He prayed for Peter that he would not fall into temptation and sin. And the elders, likewise, are supposed to pray for the individuals in the church and do that. Now, I want to use this time to briefly um, address the issue that our church is going through, and that's we're looking for a new pastor, right? Um, the search team has been meeting weekly. We've been listening to sermons. We've been interviewing pastors. We've been interviewing their doctrine, interviewing their day-to-day -day life, how they relate to people, just anything you need to be a pastor and, and be in this position. And, and we're looking for a pastor who upholds the biblical standard. Someone who shows that example that is shown in Scripture of what a pastor should be. Someone who shows example in 1 Timothy 4, or 1 Timothy 3, or Titus, when Paul speaks to Titus and Timothy about what an elder should look like. And so we're looking for that. And, and so I encourage you to be praying for someone like this, someone that this passage is talking about who will lead, someone who will shepherd the sheep and not feed themselves. We, we also see that the shepherd must be a willing shepherd and not under compulsion. He must be internally, internally motivated, meaning that he has a call from God. He's not being forced into a position where he has to lead when he's not ready. Um, we, we see why that is, because we can look in verse 3, or verse 2. It says, you should not be under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. When a shepherd is in the right, or when, when an elder is in the right spot to be a leader, he comes with a willing servant heart. He comes with a heart that's willing to serve the people and to meet their needs where they're at. In 1 Timothy 3.1, Paul says that it's a noble thing for a man to aspire to be an elder. And that, that's the first thing that is a requirement for becoming an elder, is that this person needs to be willing and open to leading and giving up their time and their energy to feed the sheep and not themselves. We also see, as I already mentioned, that um, an elder should not be up for shameful gain, um, but he should eagerly lead. And what that means is this eagerness is an eagerness to shepherd. We see the connection that um, they're going to exercise oversight, and they need to do it eagerly. We can look at Ezekiel, the passage we just looked at, Ezekiel chapter 34. It says, With force and harshness you have ruled them. Oh, excuse me. It says, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? So we see that first line that God declares to the shepherds through Ezekiel, the shepherds of Israel, the, um, the priests. And we see that they were feeding 
feeding themselves. They were not feeding the sheep. They were in it for their own gain and for their own benefit. Um, we can look at church history, and we can see how this happened in our church history. We can look at the time during the Dark Ages or Middle Ages where the church, church was in upheaval, um, where popes had multiple mistresses and kids from illegitimate births, where they were gaining riches for themselves, and the peasants and the people in their parishes were suffering while they were living in luxury. We can see all the bad ways that shepherds have presented themselves in church history and in Israel history. And we can look at the Bible and see that these were not true shepherds. These were people who had put themselves in a position or who had been placed in a position unwisely where they dominated and exercised this authority and this greediness that we should not see in an elder, someone who's leading the church. And so as a church, what we do is we look at our elders. The elders look at each other, and we look at them, and we look at the scripture, and we compare. We, we uphold them to the standard because they're the ones who are spiritually guiding us and leading us. And if they're not upheld to the standard, then what happens is the church may be led astray. And I think that's very clear when we look at this passage. The second thing that we see from the shepherds is that um, they're to be an example for the people and not domineering over them as rulers. In Ezekiel, again, it says um, that the shepherds, with force and harshness, you have ruled them. God says this to the shepherds, with force and harshness, you have ruled them. The shepherds are to lead by example, not to domineer and push and, and be harsh over the people in the flock. What this means is that their lives are to be a display in how to live. They're supposed to teach lovingly and graciously. They're not to force a position, person into a position where they're not comfortable. They're supposed to address sin, but they're not supposed to be slave drivers or tyrants, if, you, if that's a good word for it. Um, Paul tells Timothy this in... Uh, Timothy 4, or 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but, yet, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So we already talked about how the Scripture and the teaching and the exhortation is involved in the elder duty. Um, but we also see that they're supposed to be an example. That's ultimately what the Shepherd, what the elder is supposed to look like. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, um, we have that list that Paul gives to Timothy of requirements for an elder, of the characteristics in the, in the um, character that the elder is supposed to have. He says, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil." Now, I'm not going to go into detail into this, but the reason I, I read it out loud and didn't just refer to this passage is because I want us to see that there's this clear picture in Scripture of what this leader needs to look like. Now, for us, how this would apply to us, um, it might be a little different because we're not all leaders. Um, not all of us will be leaders, although hopefully that we get to a point where we can be at a point of spiritual maturity where we can disciple other Christians and new believers and, and teach them the faith and help them along. But what we can see in this list 
is godly character and a godly example that we can all strive for. This is something that um, Christ has brought to us. This is one of the great benefits of salvation. Um, this is something that Christ has get brought to us in salvation, where we can now live a holy life. Now, what that looks like may not be an instant, continuous, you know, up, uh, rise in, in the way we live our lives and the way we improve. The point is not that. The point is that we live um, in communion with God and right relationship with Him. That's what He has brought us into. And so, these are something that we can strive for as individuals uh, as well. Now, there is this gospel motivation for the elders. Um, this gospel motivation that we see in verse 4. When Peter says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, what Peter is talking about here is a reference that he already made in the beginning of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 13. This unfading crown of glory, the amaranth flower. Um, Jake already used this illustration of how the amaranth flower in the ancient world, and I'm pretty sure it still exists, but in Greece, how the amaranth flower was this flower that lasted for a long period of time. It didn't fade, it didn't die. And he uses this illustration to show this crown of glory that those who serve God in this position will receive. He talks about this as an achievement in the sense that in the ancient world, in the Greek culture, like when we think about the Olympics, they didn't receive a gold medal or a silver medal for their position. They received a crown or a wreath. And this is the same concept that God is talking about. It's a crown of victory. A crown of an accomplishment, something that you have achieved. And so, when, when God's talking to them, saying like, you will receive an unfading crown of glory when the shepherd appears, they will be judged. Every leader in the church will be judged by God. And they're... Their victorious crown will be in eternal glory with Christ. They will be able to live in eternal glory with him. Um, this is one of the aspects of what eternity looks like, one of the aspects of, of what the glorification looks like, the benefit that is gained in that. And so this is all brought through Christ, death and resurrection. This is all won over by him. This is all paid for by him. So we see that there's this gospel implication to leading the church, to leading the people and shepherding them. Um, the second charge to the church is a charge to be humble. It's a charge of humility to the church. In verse 5, Peter continues. He says, Likewise, you, are younger, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We see this relationship that occurs in the church the way that God had ordained it so that we can grow and so that we can be a representation of what his kingdom looks like. This, this word that Peter uses of subjecting ourselves to elders, the younger people to subject themselves to the elders, this word is also used in chapter 3 when he talks about wives and husbands' relationship. Um, when he talks about the wives submitting themselves to the husband, um, this this terminology is used to talk about spiritual leadership and submitting ourselves to someone's spiritual guidance and leadership. Just as a husband is a spiritual leader of the home, the way God has ordained it, so also the elder is a spiritual leader of the church. 
and where and the rest of the congregation is supposed to submit themselves to their leadership. This is a relationship that, if it's done healthily, will see growth in the church and the individual believers. Um, and it'll, it'll help the mission of the church. There to be, um, we are all to be clothed with humility towards one another. This is the second thing we see. Um, so we see that there's this relationship between the leaders in the church and the people of the church. But there's also this relationship between everyone, elders included, about humility, being clothed with humility towards one another. Now, just imagine what might be going through Peter's mind when he writes this. We think about his experiences in the gospel and what he went through with Jesus. And we can think about the story of how Jesus washed the, apostle, or the disciples' feet, right? How he showed that great servanthood, and he lowered himself and humiliated himself to that level to wash their feet. Jesus took the posture of a servant, and he washed the disciples' feet. And when he came to earth, he took even a lower posture coming to humanity so that he could live a life as a human, so he could be one of us and he can die for us and pay the penalty for our sin. And so when we um, clothe ourselves with humility, we're doing the same thing. What we're doing is we're taking on Christ's likeness that he has now brought to us through salvation, that we are allowed into, that we are partakers of. And he's sanctifying us and bringing us to maturity so that we can be in right relationship with each other. The church shows God's glory on earth. That's why he established it. And so when the church is in a loving, humble relationship with one another, when the individuals in the church love each other and humble themselves and serve one another in that way, that shows the gospel in the greatest light to the world. So we see that this clothing and humility is a big thing. When we think about the gospel, pride is against the gospel. There's no gospel without humility because you cannot accept grace, you cannot accept God's salvation unless you humble yourself to the point where you deny yourself and deny your ability to, to do good and to do good on your own and save yourself and be sufficient in your own self. And so we see that pride is contrary to the gospel whereas humility is an acceptance and a submission to the gospel. And so if the gospel life is supposed to be lived out in us, we can't be living in a prideful way towards one another. That does not display the gospel. We have to live in humility if we're going to display the gospel to one another. If we're going to display the gospel to the world, we have to live in humility because our lives are then lived contrary to the gospel. So another interesting aspect of humility that we see here is seen in verses 6 and 7. Um, this is something that I noticed that I had never, I had never noticed this before. But it's interesting, and it's something that struck personally for me, um, my dealings with worriness or anxiety. Um, and I, I think we're going to see how, hopefully in your individual lives, you might see how this occurs and, and how you can combat it. But one thing we see is that humility means uh, casting all anxieties on God, casting all our anxieties on Him. In verse 6 it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So Peter is giving a reference to an understanding of sovereignty that is drawn from Old Testament language. In the Old Testament, the mighty hand of God is to speak to God's sovereignty and his control over all creation, over everything that is in existence. 
You know, God holds all things together. He's sovereign over everything that occurs. Nothing happens outside his will. And so he's making a reference to this language when he talks about how Israel was delivered out of Egypt. And in occasions like that, when God forced his hand, basically, from our perspective, it looks like God forcing his hand, but it's his will being played out in, in our reality. But in humility, we approach all difficulties in life situations, um, particularly in suffering or persecution. It is the opposite of humility to approach life's difficulties and hardships under your own strength. And so, when we talk about anxiety and worry, what Peter is talking about here is that they're going to be, he's talking to the Christians um, throughout the, the empire who are going to undergo this persecution and struggling. He's talking to Christians now who may undergo persecution and struggling. And what he's saying is that this humility needs to be there. You need to be able to cast your anxieties on God because not doing so shows that you're trusting in your own strength and your own abilities. And that's pride getting in the way again. So when we, when we are anxious, when we are worried, we have to look at our situation and look at it from God's perspective. That there's a reason for something happening. That there's a reason that we may be struggling. That God is in control and that he, he may be doing something in our lives that we can't see. I know it's something that is hard to, to think about as being real and, and to accept, especially when you're going through a real difficult time. I remember when my grandma passed away a few years ago. That was a real struggle for me because I was really struggling with the fact that you know, God's, God's sovereign and he, he's in control of all things. Um, and, and someone who I didn't think was saved had passed away, and it's just, it was, it was a real hard struggle for me. And I realized that I was taking the burden upon myself and, and my worries, and, and I wasn't trusting in God's sovereignty for the situation. I wasn't trusting in his plan and his purpose for things. Um, so there's this clear connection between pride and anxiety that we see. And then we see that anxiety is a supplanting of God's sovereignty and care in our lives. It says that, Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We're, we're talking about a God who we can go to with these problems and these issues and who we can run to for refuge and he's going to care for us. What that may look like, we might not know ahead of time and it's scary to think about that we have to submit ourselves and we have to trust ourselves to God like that. There's something where we have to hand over something that we feel we're in control of and trust God. And when we, if we don't do that, we're still living in our own pride and and trusting in our own selves to deal with the situation. God is the one who can deal with that situation. He's the one who is sovereignly in control and who is able to um, bring us through that. So we see a gospel motivation in all of this. Um, this gospel motivation for humbling ourselves, something that we, we benefit from the gospel in that. When there's, this motivation is twofold. God will exalt you in his timing. So our motivation comes from verse, the end of verse 4 and the end of, ver, or end of verse 5 and the end of verse 6, where Peter states clearly, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then he also says, humble yourselves so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So we cannot come to God and accept his grace with a, with a prideful heart. Um, the mechanics of the gospel do not work in that way. In order for us to accept the gospel, our heart has to be humiliated and humbled to a point where we can accept the gospel, where we give up our pride. And so, 
when we see that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, this is just how the gospel works out. This is sin fighting against what God has, has created as a, as a way um, of salvation for us. For a way for us to be in relationship, in right relationship with God. We cannot commit ourselves to God, God's will for suffering or hardship in our lives, if we t- try to carry the burden ourselves. I want to go back to the subject of suffering that this passage is encaps- encapsulated in. There's definitely a principle, principles that we're learning here that can address all areas of our life. But specifically when we're talking about suffering and hardship and trials that we may go through, we see that giving up this burden to God is a way that the gospel is played out in our lives. Because he is the one who carried the burden for us at the cross. He is the one who's carrying the burden as we're walking along. He's walking along beside us. The Holy Spirit lives within us. And so when we take back our lives in a way, and we try to live in our own power and our own abilities, and, and we go through these hardships, the struggle is going to be unbearable. The only way to overcome all this is through Christ's strength. That verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, very literally is talking about a life in which Christ is in control, in which he is the one who is your strength and your power, which he is, he is the one who, who you go to. You're not relying on yourself. That's what it's talking about. So there are two great gospel motivations. We find it in humbling ourselves. And the first one is we receive God's grace and humility. So in humility, we receive God's grace. Second, God will exalt us in his timing, particularly when we are finally with him. So this humility that God will exalt us in his timing, there might be a time in our life where God lifts us up. We don't know exactly what that may look like. Um, it may be a different experience for each individual and believer. But with this end times view that Paul is thinking about, this, this hope within suffering that he's talking about, we see that finally at the end when we reach glorification, when we spend eternity with Christ, when we finally are at the new heavens and the new earth, this is when we are finally lifted up and glorified. This is a time when the pain and the suffering will go away. And so this is a hope that we look forward to even in the midst of struggling in this life. One of the greatest hopes and one of the greatest encouragements in struggling is to look at our future glory with Christ, our future life with him, and to hope in that. And, and the great hope about it is that Christ himself has accomplished that, and it's not ours to hold, ours to uh, keep. It's his. He keeps it together. So we've seen two charges to the church. One, a charge to the elders and how they should be act. And we see a charge of humility to the church and how we're supposed to live in humility and what that looks like and how that, that works in our lives. The third um, charge we see to the church is a charge to be ready in anticipation. I call this section the anticipation of the church because in our current state we both um, are expected, or we both expect resistance from the devil, and we expect God's will and glory to be brought about. So we're anticipating, we're in an expectation for two things. We know that the devil opposes us. We know that um, he opposes God, and because of that, he opposes us. He does not want to see us to be in that relationship with God. So we should expect suffering and hardship that would come from him accusing us and trying to undermine God's God's 
relationship with us, our relationship with God. So we should be in anticipation and expectation of that happening in our lives. We should expect suffering or hardship to come, whatever they, that may look like. Um, and second thing we should expect is that God's glory will be about, brought about. And we're talking about his final victory. We're talking about that eternal state with him, our glorification with him. So the first thing Paul says is to be sober-minded and watchful. Um, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Paul used this reference all the way back in the first chapter in verse 13 when he says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That verse speaks clearly to what we're talking about here. You need to be sober-minded and ready in your present time. And you hope in that grace that will be brought finally when Christ is revealed when he returns. That's when our final state is brought to completion. So this kind of acts as an inclusio, something that encapsulates the whole book, the whole uh, letter as a whole. In this idea of anticipating and hoping in the future. Because remember, Paul was writing to the persecuted church here. The church that was being afflicted in many ways. People were being killed. They were being thrown out of homes and they were losing jobs. So they were economically oppressed in that way. And so Peter gives a stark image um, of what it looks like the attack that happens on the church, the attack that happens on individual believers. He says, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So Peter uses a stark image of a predator. When we think about what a lion looks like, I'm sure we probably, most of us at least, have watched the Nature Channel. We've seen like lions stalking their prey and as a pride going around and surrounding their prey and then pouncing and chasing, right? And we can think about what a predator may look like as they attack or as they prepare to attack. And often what happens is there's like a big herd of buffalo or a big herd of antelope. What, what will happen is they'll, they'll spot out the weakest one, the smallest one, the slowest one, the sickest one. And what they'll do is they'll all gain up on that one, right? And so when you get this mental Im image of what the devil is doing when, when he's trying to attack the church and trying to attack Christians, he's waiting for a moment of weakness, a moment of hardship and struggle to shake our faith. Um, Peter gives us a solution to deal with this. He gives us a response to this, to this threat that's out there. And it's very real and it's, and it's very uh, hard to see in our lives because it's not like right in front of us. He doesn't come up to say it, come up to us and say like, hey, I'm attacking you now. You know, be aware. He's, he's doing it sneakily. We don't see it come up on us. It's very subtle in many ways. Um, so what happens, and for some Christians, I just want to make this clear, like when Christians are being killed and persecuted, that's a very clear image of something that's happening. That's something where if someone's put to the sword and they have to say, I'm with Christ or deny him, you know, that's a very, that's something we don't, I don't think any of us have experienced personally. Maybe some of us have in, in some case. But, so we're, we're talking about a broad range of attacks here, okay? A broad range of suffering. What Paul, or what Peter, I'm sorry, Peter says is to resist him in verse 9. So when this attack comes, Peter says, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So the first thing that Peter says is resist him. Firm in your faith. 
So Peter knows all too well what it's like to be tempted, to fall into temptation, to be under that kind of attack. When you, when you think about falling to temptation and being tempted, it, like I said, it can come in many different ways. And Peter in the garden, let's take this example. When Jesus and the disciples went to the garden after the Passover supper and the last Passover to pray, and Jesus was telling his disciples to pray, and they would kept falling asleep, and he'd wake them up and say, pray, and they'd fall asleep, and he'd wake, up, wake them up and say, pray. Peter knows that he experienced that, that he fell t- into that temptation. In Luke 22, 31-32, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that you might sift you like wheat, or that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So we see a second time where Peter was attacked by this temptation, by this assault that he did not see coming. Um, Jesus said that he would deny him three times. And Peter was saying, I'll go to you to death, right? And when we, what we see when the servants, and they ask him in the courtyard who he is, that, that they thought he was a disciple, right? And Peter denies Jesus three times. And Jesus even told him ahead of time that it was going to happen. That Satan, he says, Satan demanded to have you. This is a conversation that's happening between Satan and God. You know, it's a spiritual warfare that happens that we don't always see, um, that we often don't see, that we often don't think about because we're not dealing with it in a very tangible way often. And so, Jesus tells Peter this, and, and so we see that Peter experienced this fall and this failure to temptation, to denying Christ even. Fortunately, Jesus says, I pray for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. We see that this happens, right? We see that Peter was restored, that he became leader of the church in the first century. So fortunately, Peter didn't fall, but we can see so many people, and even in our own lives, who may face hardship and walk away from the faith. Um, there's, I'm sure there's people who are undergoing persecution under other countries who might um, undergo the same thing. Um, and we also see one final instance where when Jesus was talking about him going to his death, Peter says, no, Lord. like That's not what should happen, basically. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. So we see that there's another attack, another, another temptation that um, Satan is leading Peter into. So we see that this happens to him. And so he's coming with this viewpoint that this is a very real thing that happens in life. So what does he say? He says, resist him, firm in your faith. So the answer is to be firm in your faith. And what does this consist of? This consists of knowing the gospel truth, Right? The, the accuser must be seen as a fraud. So when we are brought with lies, when we, when we, when we think lies about a situation, when we think something in an unbiblical way, um, when we are brought with false teaching, when we are brought with persecution, um, when we are brought to a position where our faith may be tested, when we might be faltering, what we need to do is go to Scripture because the truth is, is what's going to reveal something to be a fraud or something to be true. When we face trials, temptations, and sufferings, we must see it from a biblical viewpoint or our faith may be shaken. So when we're, resulting, when we're, um, when we're relying on our experience, our experience and what we're going through 
we can interpret it in many different ways. And so what we have to do is we have to put it in a viewpoint that is biblical, something that will shape our viewpoint, because we can waver in so many ways depending on emotion, depending on how we feel about something, and whether we think something personally is unjust or something like that. And so we have to look at everything from a biblical lens when we're faced with trials, when we're faced with temptations, when we're faced with suffering. We have to see it through what the Bible says about it. So we we resist the devil on the strength that Christ gives us through his guidelines and scriptures, through how he is able to direct us. And that can be through other people in our lives who are helping us, who show us scripture, who show us truth. Um, And that can be from us going ourselves to scripture and preaching the truth to ourselves in time of trial, in time of doubt, in time of hardship. So, there's an encouragement that happens when we're within, in the midst of struggling, in the midst of suffering. And Peter gives this encouragement. Right after he says, resist, firm in your faith, he says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So there's this encouragement that occurs through knowing that you're going through suffering with fellow believers. If you go back to verse or chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So this is something that's supposed to be expected. Whether they like it or not, whether we like it or not, this is something that's going to happen to us. It happens to all believers in some way or another. Our life doesn't just go perfectly fine once you know, we come to Christ. There's stuff that happens to us. And so he says this. Um, he says, Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. There's this encouragement that happens from knowing that someone else is suffering. I remember when I was about 9 or 8 years old, I was, or 9 or 10 years old, I was in Awana, in Awana clubs. And so we had our Awana books where we memorized verses and, and go through lessons, and had, we had to do different things and fill out sheets and pray for missionaries and um, do a chore and help our brother and sister. You know, it's kind of like the Boy Scouts of church, if that makes sense, for those of you who don't have the background. And so one of the things I had to do was pray for a missionary. And I started praying for a missionary named Paul Ply. Many of you, I'm assuming, have heard of him. He's a missionary who's connected to our church. We've supported him in the past. I think we still do kind of now. But we support him in prayer. Um, I know... My family still gets newsletters from him. And so I remember praying for him every single night and every single day. And he came to visit one time. It was after about a year of praying for him, maybe two years even. I'd pray for him every day, and I, I felt like I had this personal connection to him because he was the guy I prayed for. And so he came to visit one time, and he was at a Bible study here. And I remember hearing the stories of how he had received lashings and whips from a whip on his back and the beatings for his faith. Now, Paul leads a ministry in India. He leads a Bible college in India. And he always is facing opposition. His ministry and the people there are always facing opposition from, from you know, people who oppose him. Satan is always bringing opposition before them. And God has been gracious. It's awesome to hear some of the stories that have happened. But I remember, I don't remember exactly how it happened, but I got to touch his back. So he still had his shirt on, but I I heard, heard about the lashings, and so I wanted to feel them. And you, 
I mean, he felt his back. He could feel all the scars, all, all the scars that were raised on his back that had been there from, as a sign and proof that he had gone through the suffering and struggle. And one of the neatest things from the whole story is that this ministry has grown and grown exponentially over the years. God has seen great fruit. People have come to Christ because of these sufferings and the response from Christians, because of their biblical response to suffering, because of their gracious response to suffering, because of their willingness to go through it for Christ. And so there's this, there's this encouragement that happens when you know that Christians around the world are going through suffering and temptation um, and trials. Even if theirs might seem much harder than ours, like ours are hard in their own way because we are all, we are all fighting the same spiritual battle and warfare that exists, um, being sons and daughters of Christ, of God. Um, and so he gives us encouragement. Um, you know, you can think about different things that happen with like ISIS and stuff. There's, there's different stories to think about where fruit comes from ministry through sufferings of Christians. But um, we, we get this encouragement knowing that the church abroad, um, everywhere, is going through suffering and persecution. And yet God is faithful and he is growing and supporting the church and he's upholding them. He's the foundation on which the church is built. Christ is the foundation, the chief cornerstone. And so, you know, we're able to go through this because of him. And so there's that encouragement that Peter gives. And then he gives the gospel motivation for this, for, for being ready and for going through the suffering and this experience. Christ gives us a gospel motivation, or Peter gives us a gospel motivation. Um, the gospel motivation for us is that through this suffering, through persecutions, through trials, through whatever we may go through, um, this is for the strengthening of our faith and the eternal glory. So first we look at like what this... This is for the strengthening of our faith, right? Um, let me read you a passage from Romans 8, 28 through 30. Paul talks about this similar thing. He says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And I know this verse has often been ripped out of context to say that everything's going to happen pretty good for everybody. Now, this verse is very clearly saying it's for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose, not everybody. So it's for believers. It's for Christians. This verse is for Christians. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So our motivation comes in times of trial from going through the suffering. Um, we know that, okay, so I'm sorry. Our gospel motivation comes from this, right? It's in God's grace that we're called to salvation. So that's where the starting point happens. It's God who calls us, right? It's God's grace we're called to suffering for his sake. Um, whatever that might look like, in our individual lives. It's according to his purpose. For those who love God, all things happen according to his purpose. What might his will be in some suffering or trial that you go through? We may not always know in the time, but we can be confident being his children, being believers, that it's for his purpose, for the good of those who love him, for the good of us. We might not see it in the, in the moment, but we know that that's why it exists. Um, in God's grace, we are called to suffering for the strengthening of our faith. In verse 10 it says, After you have suffered a little while, 
the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. We're using that same language here that we see in, in Romans. Will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So we get to a point where we come through the suffering where our, strength, or our faith is strengthened, where we're better able to serve God, where we're better able to live for him. He refines us like a refiner finding gold in a fire, right? We use that metaphor, that scripture metaphor we, see, we use often when we're talking about how God refines us. And we also see that God's grace, in God's grace, we are kept and destined to an eternal glory. It says, um, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. We realize that there's this end point to all things, right? All things that we're going through, all suffering and pain on this earth, right? We realize that eventually the new heaven and the new earth will come and that there will be this eternal glory, this, this state where we're, our hope is fulfilled, the state where we're not longing for that anymore, where we're present in it. And so, again, like before, that's, that's our hope that we look forward to is this eternal glory in the midst of suffering. In the first church, they were in the midst of it really hard. And, and we deal with it in, very, in ways that are not always the same. But in our trials, in our, in our temptations, in our suffering, we still look forward to that hope where, where Christ will finally fulfill it. And so my question for us, just kind of wrapping this up, is um, what does our suffering look like? Does it look like Paul playing the wounds on his back? I think most of us can say no, but I don't want to discount any experiences we've had, so maybe it looks like that. It might look that, like that in the future for some of us. Who knows? Um, will we be beheaded for our faith? In, in our lifetime, it's hard to see that happening. Who knows what, where things can go, though? We never know. Are we going to be beaten? We may not. Are we going to be verbally abused? This might be something that may hit a little closer to home for some of us. Something we might experience if we haven't experienced yet. Are we going to be treated with disdain by some? Um, this is something I personally experienced, some of you may have, where someone doesn't like you because you're a Christian, because of what you believe. Remember that in, their, in the time the church Peter is writing to, they were beaten and killed and disdained just because they were Christians. It was all politically motivated and brought to rise by Nero, blaming the Christians and all that. You know, it was all political. Many of these instances happened because of that. We're not in the same situation right now, but who knows what can happen in the future. So, can we all too easily find a way to avoid suffering? This is a question that I think really hits home for us. Can we all too easily find a way to avoid suffering? Because such an open and civilized society we live in um, allows us to do that. So can we openly avoid opportunities to suffer? Now when I say opportunities, I don't mean we should be running towards it. Like it's something we want to seek and we should desire in that way. What I mean is that God might bring us to a place where he could use us where he could refine us, where he could stretch our faith and grow us. And we may be going the opposite direction from that. We may have an opportunity to share our, the gospel with someone who may be offended by it. And we may let that opportunity slip away because we don't want to face that rejection. Rejection is a form of suffering. It's a form of trial that we go through. But is it 
Is it too great a cause to avoid? So are we like are we afraid to talk to our neighbors? Are we afraid of our job security? There's questions like this that we can think about. Um, so I want to challenge you all with these thoughts on, on how we may be avoiding God's suffering and how we may not be allowing God to work in our lives in times of trial and suffering come. I want to encourage you all to embrace it in a sense that it's God's will for our lives, for those who love him, for those who are called according to his will and his purpose. It's God's will that some things happen in our lives, and it may be for his glory. For the, it is all for his glory, but it may be for the spreading of his gospel. It may be for our personal growth. You never know what it is. And so I just want to close by saying that Paul gives this charge to a church that is in the midst of real, tangible persecution, where it's physical, where it's economical, where it's seen in a way in our everyday life. We are not in that position in many ways. In most ways, we're not in that position. Very rarely are we in that position. Um, but at the same time, this applies to us, because we still go through trial, through temptation, through suffering. This is not to discount that, because it's, we're always going to be going through that, no matter, unless we live as a hermit. Then we're living in a, in a place where we're gave into the temptation of not being a part of the body, which is what Christ wants for us, right? Um, so, yeah. Christ gives a charge to the leaders of the church to feed the sheep and guide them. And that's what we're looking for is when we're looking for a pastor. And, and we want you to keep praying with us. and Ask me any questions. Uh, you can email Amy with any questions about that. Um, and we're also to be a, a church that's marked by humility because that's how we react to this in a humble way, knowing that Christ may place these instances in our lives that we're supposed to relate to each other in a loving, humble way. And then also that our response to suffering is that it's for God's will. And there's also there's a solution to it all. You know, Christ doesn't let us get into a place in a place of struggle that we can't get out of. Because we all know that Christ is more than able, he's more than strong to get us out of it. We might not be able to do it in our own power, but Christ is able. Um, so as we, we come to communion now, um, this is a place where we where we realize what Christ has done for us and his death and resurrection on the cross. This is a place we come to where some of our suffering may have started to begin. This is a place where we come, where we partake in that life and that suffering that Christ partook in when he came to earth. This is a place where we live our gospel life in humility, um, where we live our gospel life embracing whatever the will of God is for our life. Christ came to suffer die for us. That was the will of God, and he did it willingly. Are you willing to follow along with Christ's will for your life? So this is a place for the believer to come in encouragement, knowing that they're in this together. They went, Christ went through this. He more than understands and is willing to take care of it. Fellow believers, the church as a whole, we take communion because we're all going through struggle like this. This is a place where we remember the universal church and pray for them and, and realize that they go through the same struggle, and they're, they're part of our body as well. And then this is a place where we look to that eternal hope, that hope of final glorification that God has prepared for us to help us and motivate us and give us hope in the midst of struggle and temptation and trial and suffering, whatever that may look like. Um, if you're not a believer, this is nothing for you. This is not nothing more than a ritual. So uh, this, is, this is a representation of what Christ did. He shed his blood for us. His body was broken for us. He died for us. But if you're not a believer, come to Christ. You need him. Accept his gospel message and trust in him. Let go of your pride and humble yourself and be willing to take 
what he did for you because you're not strong enough on your own. Um, so let's let's pray and then take communion. Father, uh, when we think about the gospel in our lives, Lord, we, we realize that it really expands to every every corner and crevice of our existence. We realize that you have redeemed the whole person, that your redemption is a part of our joy. It speaks to our suffering. It speaks to pain. It speaks to our relationships with one another. It speaks to the ability for elders and leaders to be shepherds that, that feed the sheep. Lord, your gospel is all-changing, and it's, it's not just salvation, but it changes our lives, and we receive that blessing. And so we come before your table with thankful hearts, knowing that um, whether we're going through struggles now or we will down the road, that you have already won the victory, that you have prepared for us a place of hope, a place of eternal, eternal joy with you, something to look forward to. And so we come in celebration and thankfulness when we come to the table, and we, and we thank you for what you have done for us. Uh, praise in Christ's name. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you,